The One Tough Mother Podcast. The One Tough Mother Show is real talk with special guests, including industry leaders, celebrities, and amazing women who've overcome adversities to work their way to the top and are willing to share their real life lessons. Remember, you don't have to be a mother to be one tough mother. It's all about you. Hi, welcome to the One Tough Mother Show. Holy cow, Seth, it's raining. It's raining. I can't even yeah. believe the Northeast. Rain. Imagine that. It's like we're in London. I swear. I looked it up this morning because Ma came down and she's like, and she's doing really great, by the way. She came down the steps. She's like, hey, nice. uh, it's, is it still raining? I'm like, Ma, it's raining for the rest of the year. Just get used to it. That's it. It's like, it's like the ice age. Now it's the rain age. It's crazy. My son was actually affected by the tornado. He had eight about 20 or maybe 25 foot um, fir trees outside his yard that lined his street so you couldn't see out into the street. It took six of the eight. Wow. Yeah, it looks like a disaster zone. I lost two of my goats, yeah. You have goats? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, geez, I was gonna say. (laughs) No wonder your neighbor hates you, dude. I didn't know you had goats. (laughs) Yeah, it's sickening now. I'm done with it, actually. Yeah. What what else uh, has been going on with you? Um, I'm just really uh my my oldest my stepson uh, is ten and uh I'm just amazed like he's just you know I'm, I'm kind of tough on him because I'm just I'm one tough brother and I'm also one tough dad I'm just tough on the kids but he's such a good kid and he's just so well rounded. Um, Saturday he had uh it's, he pitched two innings in his baseball game and he did really well and then he had three hits but you know like, like kind of like little league hits but then his last time up I said you're gonna hit it good this time. And he smashed one last inning. Like he would be the winning run. It's like going, going. This kid reached up as high as he could, stretched out, and he caught the ball. It was like, it was a, but it was great. Everybody's like, oh, wow, it was a great shot. And, you know, he just had a good game. He's really happy. And, uh, and he's playing cello. He's going to be in the fifth grade concert, even though he's only in fourth grade. And then yesterday we went to the art show. He's one of the few kids in his grade picked to have his art displayed at the art show at the high school. So, I mean, he's just, and he had straight A's in, in school this year. So he's just so well-rounded and uh, uh, just yeah, really proud of him. And so, wow. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit in awe too. You know, I was like, wow. I, <laughs> I said, I had like basically none of this going on at that age. And it's just, it's really impressive. And it also goes to show you that uh, how much music and art play a part in education. You know, people always talk about it, but people don't realize that it really does. It really helps kids. I think so, too. And you know what? The fact of the matter is when they're in fifth grade and they're doing that well, because you're talking about he's starting to get preteen. So there's going to be like outside influences now that are really going to start hammering him. If he's got that great of a foundation, that's that's just a huge attestment to you and your wife who are just really doing really well raising him. And the fact that he's got a real solid personality. And if you keep him on that straight and narrow, I mean, if you can really, you know, keep him enthused about his life and all his extracurricular activities, I think he'll do, he'll do extremely well throughout his life. And he's only fourth grade. That's yeah, amazing. And, yeah. And getting into this, like you're talking about fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Now life is going to start getting a little tougher and there's going to be a lot more influencing from his outside. So you got to really, he's got a great foundation. I'm really happy for you both. And I'm really proud of you both because it's really, it's a lot. It's a lot nowadays to keep a kid, um, his head level and keep him looking forward. And he, he's got to be proud of himself. He's got to be. Yeah. 
And we just got him a phone too. It's funny. Um, he's like one of the last kids in his grade to get a phone. But you know, we got a tr- we went to Target and got a track phone. It's like you know, you pay. It's very cheap. The phone's cheap. The pl- plan's cheap. It's just for him to text us when uh, if he wants to stay after school and play with his friends at school. You know, and it's or he just has to get in touch with us. Other than that, we're not like you know, we didn't get him an iPhone, and you know, he's not playing Fortnite at lunch and anything. You know, right? Just try- yeah, and he and he listens, and uh, he's just a good kid. And hopefully, we're gonna try to keep him that way. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy for you. I'm really proud of it. It's, nowadays, it's just so very, very difficult with with the internet and everything. And, and we talk about this all the time. It's difficult to keep your kids, like, kind of on a straight path. But you, you know, if you're involved as as involved as as you, Melissa, are with your children, um, I think it's much. It, you have much better chance and much better um, opportunity to keep them going in the direction you want them to go into. So congratulations, dude. I think that's huge. Thank you. You're very welcome. And tell him I said uh, you owe him something really cool. <laughs> I told I told him. I told him. I let him know because you told me that the other, yesterday. I said, all right, yeah, yeah, pick something. He's still thinking. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's great. Good for you. Well, I mean, today's guest um, – we're going to talk to her in just a moment, but this blew my mind. I mean, I've been on Cat Cannabis's show. She has her own show and um, she wrote a second book and it just blew my mind when I, I'd heard everything that she's been through. She's a, she's an amazing woman. She's a good friend actually. And um, she has a great, a crazy story. I mean, the story's just like amazing. And um, she wrote her first book was like Surviving Cancerland. And she wrote that back in 2014. And it's about her going through cancer and how she approached it and the things that helped her through it. But her second book, Dreams That Can Save Your Life, she actually teamed up with Dr. Larry Burke, who's um, an amazing doctor. And um, it's just a crazy, it's, it's a crazy book. And it's just really shows that, you know, we have a lot more in us than we reach for. We have a lot of um, things in us that I think environmentally and, and um, socially we, we suppress. I always say animals have that, you know, the animal sense. And I think we, we're animals and I think we have that. We just suppress it. So I can't wait for when we come back, we're going to talk to her. She's an amazing guest. And um, hey, everybody, don't forget your umbrella today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. And we'll be back. The One Tough Mother Podcast. Real talk with amazing women who have worked their way to the top and want to share their real life lessons with you. Today, we welcome to our show an author, a dream expert, a radio and TV host who penned her first book in 2014 titled Surviving Cancerland, in which she explains how she used her intuitive aspects of healing to beat cancer. Often, she had to persuade her doctors to cooperate with her. And now, her newly released book last month, Dreams That Can Save Your Life, our guest teams up with Dr. Larry Burke, a pioneering TED Talk speaker on healing dreams and cancer, to chronicle the stories of participants in Dr. Burke's groundbreaking Breast Cancer Dreams Project, which our guest was part of. It's an amazing, amazing story, and it's with great pleasure that we welcome to the One Tough Mother show my friend, author and dream expert, Kathleen O'Keefe Cannabis. Yay, Kat! Oh, thank Yay, you. Thanks so much. Your show. It's I, like party time again because you were on my show and we had such a great connection that I couldn't wait to be back on with you. I know. I was super excited. I was telling Top Brother Seth about it. So how are you? 
I'm doing wonderful. I mean, uh, you know, our book just launched like three weeks ago. And it went to the top of uh, the Amazon bestseller number one spot in 12 hours. Amazing. Amazing. For, both the, for both the Kindle and the, and the book. So um, I've been busy doing radio shows like yours. And uh, it's been a great ride. Oh my gosh, Kat. It's, it's such a crazy, crazy cool concept. You have to walk us through. So that means you're going to have to take us back from the beginning and give mm -hmm. us some background and tell us how this all happened. Well, it happened, um, it's been, it's hard to believe, Karen, but it's been almost 20 years wow. when, when I, when I first, uh, found out that I had the breast cancer, when the dreams or nightmares first started, it was in 1999. And, um, I remember the, the dreams started right after I had gone to have, to have my yearly checkup and my doctors told me I was healthy and to go home. So I did. And that night I had the beginning of these recurrent nightmares where I would be having my regular dream, like I'd fall asleep. And then all of a sudden my dream would freeze just like the page on your computer. Oh. And I'd be looking around going, well, that's strange. Everything's frozen. I mean, if there were, if there had been a bird flying in the dream, the bird would be frozen in the sky. And, and all of a sudden that pop-up would appear on that frozen screen and there'd be movement inside the pop-up window. And that window would become a door. And through that door would walk a monk, a Franciscan monk. It looked like um, St. Francis of Assisi just walked through that door with his hood up, you know, and this monk would, would say to me, come with me. We have something to tell you. And I'm like, well, okay. And, uh, I would walk through this door, which I then termed the door between realms or the room between realms. It was a sacred dream doorway to the divine. I really believe that. And in this realm between realms, these Franciscan monks would take my hand, put it on my breast and say, do you feel that? I'd say, yeah. They'd say, that's breast cancer. You go back to your doctor and you get a second set of tests. Wait, now, wait a minute, Kat. This was a reoccurring dream? Yes. I had it about oh, over three months. I would have it, I don't know, maybe eight or nine times. Kat, why monks? Is there, was there some correlation to anything? No, Karen, no. I, I'm not even Catholic. I have no idea why monks, except, you know, who's going to argue with a monk? Right, right. <laughs> you know, I'm a pretty strong woman. I'll argue with most things, but, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with a monk when you can't even see their face because their hood is up. And there, there's a bunch of them. There's like this army of monks <laughs> in this room. And they're going, yeah, you have breast cancer, which is, you know, you want to believe your doctor, Karen, when your doctor says, Hey, you know, you're healthy, go home. That's what you want to hear. That's what you want to believe. You do not want to believe monks in a dream saying you have breast cancer, go back. Like, you know, anybody really loves to go and get, you know, their blood tested, a mammogram, a pap smear. I mean, that is not my most favorite thing in the world. I'd much rather believe the doctor who says I'm healthy than the monks that say I'm sick. But it was a recurrent dream, which meant it happened over and over and over again. And each time they'd say, no, you go back to your doctor. So finally, in the third month, when the, I had the same dream again, and the monks uh, walked into my dream when it froze, I started crying. 
And the monk was standing there looking at me and I said, I know why you're here, but I don't know what else to do. My doctor is not listening to me. He keeps giving me mammograms. He keeps giving me blood tests. He can't feel anything. He has sent me home. If I really do have breast cancer, help me. You do something to help me uh, if you don't want me to die. And this monk reached into his his uh, cloak, into his, you know, where he had his hands, and into the sleeves, the big, big sleeves. He pulled out this little tiny feather. And he said, if you go back to your doctor tomorrow without an appointment, and you use this tiny little white feather as though it were a sword to cut through his arguments, you're going to get the test you need, which is exploratory surgery. That's the only thing that, that's going to find this now. So, um, and then he disappeared. Wow. So I went back to my doctor the next day, showed up on his doorstep. <laughs> his receptionist immediately hit the panic button. The doctor walked out, right? Right. Why are you back? And I said, because I know something's really wrong. And long story short, I used that feather as though it were the sword. I imagined that feather between my fingers when I was talking to him and said, I don't know where else to go. You know, I'm not a hypochondriac, but I need exploratory surgery to find this. And my gosh, Karen, he looked like I had just set myself on fire in front of him. And you're said, asking no. for surgery. You're like, you're yeah. like, cut me open, find this. Yes, exactly. And 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 he's going, no, no, I can't do that. It's against my policy and it's against hospital policy. And again, I imagined that feather. I imagined pointing it at him. And I said, I need help. I need you to help me. And, it, you know, we see all these um, vampire shows on TV, Karen, where the vampire just kind of waves his hand and says, you know, you want to go jump off the bridge and land on your head. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I, d- I definitely want to go jump off that bridge and land on my head. That's kind of what this feather did. My doctor looked at me and he said, OK, just a minute. He goes out, comes back in, and he had made an appointment for surgery for me two days after New Year's. Wow. And long, yeah, long story short, I was in stage two aggressive breast cancer with it in a lymph node. And that was validated by pathology reports. Wait, Kat, now it was mm-hmm. not, you couldn't feel it. Obviously you can't see it nope. and you were not ill at all. And where, where did they start? Like how did, where did they start with this exploratory surgery? Um, well, he said to me, point to where you think, you know, where it is. And I said, it's right here. Cause I kept putting his hand on it. Like the monks did me, I put his hand on it. And I said, can you feel it? And he said, no. And I said, well, it's right there. It's right there. I can feel it. I can feel it. So he said, you know what? I'm just going to go right down over top of where you're showing me. And let's see what we've got. There it was. So that was the beginning All right. That was the first time. And then five years later, Karen, almost to the date, I had the chiefs of everybody now watching me and uh, the chief of radiology, the chief of oncology. Oh, the chief of everything. You name it. If it was a chief, it was my doctor. And um, they were, again, using mammograms to watch for recurrence when the mammograms didn't find the first breast cancer. And I kept asking them, why are you using mammograms again to look for breast cancer when they didn't find the first one. And my doctors kept saying the mammograms are only as good as the people who take them and the people who read them. 
We're the best. If there's a problem, we'll catch it. And the dreams and the monks started up again, Karen. And oh my God, it was so bad. When I saw them, I was like, no, I know why you're here. Go away. Go away. I can't even imagine. That must have been so freaky. It was. And so I had a mammogram. I, I had a mammogram and the doctor read it right there in front of me. And he said, congratulations, Mrs. Cannabis. You've hit your five-year mark. You're healthy. Go home. And the monk literally orbed into the room. That was the first time that had ever happened. The doctor couldn't see him, but I felt him right beside me. I saw him as if I were in a dream. He pointed to one of the mammography films and he said, you tell the doctor to look right here. So I did. I pointed to it and I said, look right here. And the doctor turned to me and said, Mrs. Cannabis, that's not the breast that has cancer. This over here is the breast that has cancer. And I said, yeah, but what about this area right here? Look right here. And he turned in his chair and he looked at me and he said, you're healthy. Go home. And instead, I ran down to L2, the lower level, second floor where they do radiology, to the chief of radiology. And I said, I need an MRI. I know something is wrong. He said, you know, I just talked to the doctor upstairs, and we think that you're just having an anxiety attack. There's nothing wrong with you. You are so healthy. Go home. And that night, a whole army of monks came through that door. <laughs> and they said, you go back tomorrow. You get an MRI. You don't take no for an answer. So I did. I went back. And I was a real pain in the butt, Karen. I told the doctor, I said, you know what? I'm not leaving your office. I was in the waiting room with all these people. I said, I'm not leaving this office till I get that MRI. I don't care if I have to lie down here on your floor, kick my feet like a two-year-old who's had candy taken away. You're going to have to call security to drag me out by my heels. Because I knew those monks weren't wrong. They weren't wrong the first time. So the doctor just kind of threw up his hands and he said to his secretary, okay, go ahead, get her the MRI. And it took me three and a half months to get that MRI. And I had a nine by 11 centimeter tumor that sent them running for the hills and my records disappeared. Oh my gosh. Of course they did. Of course. That is just what an incredible story. I can't even believe it. So now you have this tumor and aren't they like, oh, cat or oh, Miss Cannabis, um, we're so sorry. No, the one doctor just said, well, I guess mammograms aren't your friend. And I said, you think? Wow. <laughs> I mean, seriously, he goes, well, we already had a big meeting with the chiefs of everybody here at the hospital. And I said, well, yeah, they're all my doctors. Wow. So I ended up going through chemotherapy again radiation therapy again, six months of it. And um, then at the end of, of my treatment, like in, going into that eighth month, I said, you know what? I, the dreams came back again. I mean, it was like endless, Karen. It was just endless. And the, my, my monks said, you need a double mastectomy. You need to have, and I had asked for that and the doctors wouldn't give it to me. So now they were adamant. No, we're not going to give you a double mastectomy because we are not going to take a healthy breast. We're just not. And I said, but you don't know it's not healthy. Your tests aren't working. And so finally what I did was I went to New York 
and I got new doctors. And when they agreed to do the double mastectomy, they found cancer in the other breast that had been missed with the MRIs and missed with everything again. Now, those doctors in New York had all of my tests, all of my records that were left, all of that. And when they read through those records, they called the doctors in Boston and said, what's going on? What, how, how can you possibly miss a nine by 11 centimeter tumor? How can you possibly not, you know, wait three and a half months to, to do an MRI? I mean, with three and a half months, I, I could have had a much better treatment. Even the first time taking three and a half months to do exploratory surgery, my treatments didn't have to be that severe. And so that's why this book dreams that can save your life early warning signs of cancer and other diseases is so important. The answers are often in our dreams. And if we wait long enough for the medical community to concur with the dreams, it might be too late. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, Kat. And and so now, how, now, how many years had lapsed at this point when you were in New York? It's been almost, um, it's been almost 15 years, 16 years. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I'm doing great. And, and I remember Karen, you know, and I haven't told many people this, but you know, I'm going to tell you on your show when I, um, found out that I had recurrence that was that big, I thought I was going to die. I really did. Uh, a nine by 11 centimeters recurrence that just, you know, you just don't recover from that. Right. And so I was crying all the time and I fell asleep on the bed one night, one afternoon, because I was exhausted from, from my emotions. Emotions are exhausting. And I laid down in the bed and I dreamed that I woke up, but I hadn't, I was still sleeping. I didn't realize it at the time. It's called the waking dream. And I dreamed that I woke up and looked up and there were the monks around my bed and I got really mad. And I said, I know why you guys are here. I know I'm dying. You don't need to tell me that. I figured it out. Got it. But you may want to go and warn God that when I get there, I am going to have some really big bones to pick with him. Uh, because I don't know why I would have to get this once, let alone twice. I can't imagine what I ever did in any lifetime that would be bad enough to have to go through this again. And the monks looked at me and they said, don't you remember and I said, remember what? They said, you wanted to come down onto the earth plane during a time when higher power in God is being taken out of everything, shoved in, into a closet and that door locked and science is being worshiped as a God. And you said you were going to show that science goes so far and then comes God. And we told you we would be with you every step of the way. And I looked at them and I said, what the hell was I smoking up there? Oh, my was God. In my mind. <laughs> and they started laughing. And they said, no, that's what you said. And here we are. So that's when I realized that no matter how bad this got, no matter what I had to go through, it's what I had predetermined as my life purpose to bring a knowing back into the earth plane that was being swept under the carpet. And so that's what I've been doing ever since. And that's why I decided to take this research that Dr. Larry Burke was doing because I was one of his research patients, turn it into a book, not just for the medical society, the medical community that could poo poo it, but all of the people listening on your show who, if they walk into their doctor's office with this book and say, look, I had a dream 
I know something's wrong. And all of these stories in this book are validated by medical pathology reports. So I know there's truth behind it. It's going to change medicine as we know it today, which is focusing on if we can't see it under a microscope, it doesn't exist. Oh my gosh, Kat, I am so proud of you. And and it's just, it's such a, a step to, to go in the face of what the norm is. Anytime that we step out like that, it's very, very frightening, but it's also empowering at the same time, wouldn't you say? I would. And so does that mean I get to be one of the uh, Tough Mother team members? You're one Tough Mother Army, babe. You're in it. <laughs> I definitely will get you. Uh, you'll be getting your shirt. So tell me, how how did you get in touch with Larry, Dr. Larry Burke? He had, uh, when he was getting ready to do his research, he had gone onto the internet to see if he could find other women who had dreams that diagnosed their breast cancer because he already had a team of about four or five and um, and those included the women who had come into him because he's he was chief of radiology at Duke University at that time. So he they had come into him and said, you know, I know something's wrong. I had a dream and I need a mammogram. And boom, there was the cancer. So he said, my gosh, if there's five of them, there's got to be more than that. So when he went online and researched, my book came up. And when he read my book, he said, yes, yes, that's what, I, that's what I'm looking for. This happened three times. I mean, I could understand once, maybe twice, but three. So um, we teamed up and we started uh, doing uh, panels, uh, re, um, discussion panels at the International Association for the Study of Dreams which is where we're going to be doing another panel this June 17th. We're going to be in Scottsdale at the Doubletree Resort in Paradise Valley. And we're going to be talking about dreams that can save your life. And we're going to have two other panelists on there with us who are both doctors and they are in the book. And they had dreams that diagnosed their illnesses. One had uh, lung cancer. And the other one was a doctor who used to work on children. She was a pediatrician. And the dreams her children told her about healing and about her illness, she put into the book. Oh, my gosh. That is just so powerful. Kat, that's amazing. How extremely interesting is this? That's incredible. And and Dr. Larry Burke, he, he really like he really sunk everything into this, right? Like he really believes and wholeheartedly pulls it through, right? Oh yes, he does. And I mean he, you know, you have to walk a very, very fine line uh when you're dealing with things that are not things that are outside the normal medical box in the medical hospitals because he's at Duke University there and he's got a he's chief of radiology. He's got to walk a very fine line. Otherwise he could very easily lose his job. And so he did because what we did in this book with his research and the research that he did, he tied everything back to the pathology reports. So no matter how woo woo or out there somebody's dream was, it was grounded 
with the pathology report. Now, nobody in the medical community could argue with that because basically it was a double blind study. The doctors didn't know about the dreams. Most of the people just went in and said, you know, I know something's wrong or I'm having pain. I mean, having pain, I learned from reading all of these stories that the the people sent us, the 41 stories in this book, the pain word gets you whatever you want. So even women who were not in pain, but knew something was wrong because of their dreams would walk in and say, I'm in pain. I'm in pain. Uh, so I need a mammogram and they get it. And oh. boom, there would be instead of fighting, there was no fight. They would just say, I'm in pain. That's the magic word. <laughs> just wow. so your listeners know. Right. That's great. That's really great information because right. Unless you're in pain and you just go, all right, just say tomorrow I go to the doctor and say, I, th- I think I have cancer here. They're going to look at me like I'm a nut. Yes, they will. And they'll say, you have no symptoms. Most cancers are asymptomatic until they're too late to be dealt with. You have no symptoms. We can't feel anything. And without symptoms, we cannot do additional testing because that's hospital policy. And when you're bucking hospital policy, they you're not going to win unless, you know, you're like me and you threatened to kick your feet like a two-year-old. So what you do is you go in there with, I'm in pain. I'm in a lot of pain right here. And usually they'll just go right to the MRI, which is what you want anyhow, because if you're young and you've got dense breasts, it's not probably not going to show up, which is what was happening with me. Here I have an MRI, a mammogram, and I've got a nine by 11 centimeter lobular tumor and they don't even know it. Right. Oh my gosh. That is so incredibly nuts. And it just doesn't have to be like one person had lung cancer, right? He got that out of a dream. He got that out of a dream. We've got 41 stories in this book and they're not all breast cancer. In fact, they're not all cancers. We've got cystic fibrosis. We have diabetes. Um, There's a number of other diseases where people had a dream, really bizarre dreams. Do you have time for me to tell you one of these, the most bizarre dreams in here? Oh, the listeners will kill me if I don't do it, please. Okay. Okay. It's in this book and it's called The Silver Spaceship Saved My Life. And um, this, the person in this dream had gone for a checkup and uh, she found that she had uh, stage four uterine cancer. She was like in her twenties, early twenties, had a two year old child. And the doctor said, we've tried everything. She went through all these different treatments, lost her hair, the whole works, nothing was working. The doctor said, we've come to the end of the road. There's nothing else we can do. Go home, get your house in order, you know, uh, figure out what you're going to do with your child. You've got about two months. So she was devastated and she went home And she had a dream that night. And in the dream, this silver spaceship came down and landed in her backyard. And she heard it. And in the dream, she got up and she walked out to the spaceship. And there were these little people that got out of the spaceship. And they walked up to her and they said, you need interferon. And she said, what? They said, you need interferon for your cancer. Remember this, interferon. Go back to your doctor. And then they turn around, they walk back in the spaceship, and the spaceship took off, and in her dream, she walked back into her bedroom, got back in her bed, and went to sleep. So the next morning when she woke up, she remembered the dream. She went back to her doctor, and she said, I know you're going to think this is really crazy, but this is what happened. And she dared to tell her doctor the dream. 
And the doctor turned white and he said, what did they tell you you needed? And she said, interferon. Do you know what that is? And can you get it for me? He said, that's a new chemotherapy that just came out, but it's not even on the market. There are some study groups. He says, that's the only way I can get that drug for you is to get you in one of these study groups, but I can't guarantee anything because it's so new. He says, but we have nothing to lose. Got her in the study group. That was 20 years ago. Oh my, unbelievable. Um, That's just incredible. That is just incredible. Kat, I mean, I am so grateful that you're on our show and telling everyone this. And again, the name of your book is? Dreams That Can Save Your Life, Early Warning Signs of Cancer and Other Diseases. Amazing. Amazing. And it's on Amazon now, right? Yes, it's on Amazon. It's in all the Barnes and Nobles. It's on um, Simon and Schuster. It's on Inner Traditions. Um, it's very easy to find. And, and Kat, where can our guests, where can, where can our listeners contact you? You can go to my website, which is KathleenO'KeefeCannabis.com. But if my name is too much to remember, just go to The Queen of Dreams. Beautiful. Put that in your search bar, The Queen of Dreams. It'll take you right there. That's beautiful. Kat, I can't thank you enough. I mean, this is the most amazing. And, and I wish you, and Tough Brother Seth and I both, wish you all the luck with this book. I think it's just going to be amazing. I can't wait to read it. I'm so excited. I want to get a copy for mom because, you know, mail manager mom, that's all she does is read. And uh, she orders a book a day from Amazon and the guy delivers one a day just about. It's amazing. But um, I'm going to have to get a copy for mom. And Kat, thank you. Thank you so very, very much for being our guest. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And anytime that you have something come up, please reach out and we'll talk anyway. We're friends, so we'll talk. But again, everyone, it's the name of the book is? Dreams That Can Save Your Life, Early Warning Signs of Cancer and Other Diseases. And if you have a dream, like the ones I just talked about, send it to me at catcan at comcast.net. We're doing book two. Excellent. Thank you, Kat. Have bye a bye. wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Big hugs. Big hug to you, too. The One Tough Mother Podcast. Real talk with amazing women who have worked their way to the top and want to share their real life lessons with you. And we're back. We've got headaches and headlines. Hit it, Seth. Whoa. Hit it. I'm on stage. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, earlier about pets a little bit, and there's a little story about pets. It's a, it's a segue after the interview, but we're going to go into it anyway. Emotional support pets lose support. Well, this is a bummer. Um, are emotional support pets going out of fashion? American Airlines, the biggest in the U.S., has joined United, Delta, and Alaska in issuing new rules about bringing the pets on board including requiring advance notice, a letter from a mental health professional, and a form attesting that the animal will not relieve itself in the cabin. SFGate, uh, SanFranciscoGate.com, says the rules, rules also, uh, the rules also bar disruptive behavior as well as all amphibians, ferrets, goats, hedgehogs, insects, reptiles, rodents, snakes, spiders, sugar gliders, non-household birds like chickens, geese, and hawks, and any animal with tusks, horns, or hooves, with the exception of miniature horses, if properly trained. Per SF gate. Wait a um, minute. You can take a miniature horse in the cabin <laughs> of a plane. But they're not gonna, they're, yeah, they're not going to let you take a sugar glider 
or a. Can, can you tell me what a sugar glider is? Like, a, I don't know like a squirrel, like a little squirrel that glides through the air. What? Yeah, they're little. Look them up on it. I'm look going up, to. I've yeah. never heard of a sugar glider. They're really cute, actually, and they were popular like a couple years ago as pets. I got a sugar glider. You got a sugar glider? I got okay. a sugar glider. Yeah, can you believe it? I can't believe it. it, it stop. I, I read this story and said, wait a minute. Am I reading it wrong? And you just read it exactly how I read it. <laughs> you can take a miniature horse on the in the cabin of a plane. Well, now I can't bring my goat on anymore. I'm very upset. And and you're gonna you're going to sign a letter attesting to the fact that your animal will not relieve itself in the cabin. Well, then you hmm. what do you put? It depends on it. That's a good idea. Actually, sure. that's what I would do. Yeah. See, you're always thinking outside the box. That's me. And inside the cabin. <laughs> Very yeah. funny. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to think about this. This is a little crazy. Um, but it's it's not totally a ban- uh, banning it. It's just you have to, you know. I, I got to say, too, it made, the first thing I thought of in this day and age is terrorism, too. I mean, I'm sure you could use these animals, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think of that, dude. Yeah. yeah. Tape a... Tape a bomb to one of them or something. Right. Well, actually, I we used when I was military, we used to fly home and um, bring our dog home. But the dog always had to be in a crate in the um, where the luggage was because it was a big dog. But I've seen people with little dogs on the plane. I brought my cat uh, I, I, when I um, I worked cross country and uh, I moved cross country and I brought my cat on a couple different flights. That must yeah. have been tough, dude. Cat, did you have to give it something to relax it? I did actually. Yeah, I gave him a little, little something from the vet. Um, yeah. The first time I did that, I thought I was poking him. I thought he was dead. <laughs> my cat. <laughs> You're whacked. Knocked out. I did. I thought he was dead. He's knocked out. Cats are never like out, out. Where like you know you poke them, and they don't move. Oh. So I'm nervous, but um, let's move on. Facebook boom. Facebook says it shut down 1.3 billion fake accounts in the last six months as hate speech, terrorism, and violence continue to flood the site. Facebook has published its first community standards report since the Cambridge Analytica scandal first erupted earlier this year. It revealed that it suspended 1.3 billion fake accounts in the last six months. The firm also moderated millions of posts spreading hate speech and terrorism. Artificial intelligence tools have increased success in spotting content. Facebook acknowledged that its artificial intelligence detection technology still doesn't work that well, particularly when it comes to hate speech, and that it needs to be checked by human moderators. It's important to stress that this is very much a work in progress, and we will likely change our methodology as we continue to learn more about what's important and what works, says Guy Rosen, Vice President of Product Management at Facebook, in a statement. We have a lot of work still to do to prevent abuse, he added. I mean, that's so, great that they're on top of it, you know? And they're well, yeah, they're trying. trying. Yeah. 1.3 billion with a B That's fake a accounts. I mean, I don't know. I forget how, is it 6 billion people are on Facebook? I forget. I thought that number came to my mind. So, well, that's, you know, like ISIS and, and other terrorist groups, that's their number one recruiting tool is social media. So, um, if we can get a, ahead of that and, and try to, you know, curb that a little bit, I mean, no, it doesn't blow your mind that it's the world. Seriously, it's the world you're speaking to when you're on social media. Yeah, it's crazy, and like it lives forever. Yeah, you know, no, nothing is ever erased. There's ever. no internet eraser. I know when I first started One Tough Mother seven years ago, they would Facebook gave me such a rash because they said it was um, bullying. One Tough Mother, M U T H E R, oh, and wow. I had to keep sending them 
like this is my trademark registered company. This is my name. You know, I own this. It's a company. And after, I don't know, I don't know, maybe six or eight attempts, they sent me back a letter and said, okay, we, we've checked it out and we've identified that it is your trademark registered company and we've seen that things that you posted. So I never had problems after that, but in the beginning, seven years ago, yeah, they gave me a rash of it, man. Yeah, you really fooled them. Yep. Okay, well, this next one, um, I can say personally that uh, I am... I'm part of the um, solution and not part of the problem. I do um, think that, yes. <laughs> yes. The coming baby drought. Um, the number of people on Earth under 15 years old is, is expected to hit a peak of 2.09 billion in 2057. Oh, wow, 2057. After that, we are looking at a global decline in young people. How could they know that by uh, now? Right. The, sh the shift has already begun in much of the world's affluent economies, with Japan and South Korea uh, graying the fastest. As the number of workers dwindles and the elderly population expands, the case for robot workers will likely grow stronger, reports Axios. Um, 2057, I will be uh, dead. Yeah. You know what? I, I thought this too. I was like, well, me personally and, and my kids. I'll be 97. Yeah, you'll be 97. You'll be alive. Me and my Maybe. kids are like totally, we've, we're part of the solution. You're part of the solution. But how do they know that? 2057. How many? Wait, how many years is that? It's what? 40. I think it's all like, um, you know, analytics and running, you know, it's just all Trend, estimates. It's trends, yeah. right. You know, the yeah. Trend. yeah. Who knows? Who well, knows? you know, maybe a Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle will have lots of kids. Yeah, do it. Help. Do it. More, more royals. <laughs> yes. Oh, you know, it's, you know what bothered me? I got to say, because we're, we're going to talk about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle will marry Saturday at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle in England. What bothers me about this, uh, um, you know, Melissa watches CBS this morning. You say, oh, they're live from, they're, they're in England all week and everything. I said, that's the one show I don't want there, okay? Because, well, everyone else is there. I said, exactly. When you're like, you know, CBS this morning to me is a, a pretty serious uh, morning show and I like it. Um, that's the one that shouldn't be there. Right. Like, you know, let, let everyone else run over there and uh, people are getting married and they're royal. Uh. Right, okay. right, right. I don't know. For me, it's like, good luck. You know, I'm happy for you. And if you're into watching that, I'm, I'm not going to make fun of you. But at the same time, it's like, okay, great. I, it, I, I don't know. Is it is Melissa going to watch it? I probably not. I don't know. Well, you got to face this, dude. It's going to be on the internet a million, jillion times for the rest of your life. <sighs> you're going to see it no matter what. So... Uh, I'm not when like, I was like 11, when I was 11, I didn't get it then either with the Princess Diana and all that. I was like, who cares? Yeah. No, no, and no. I'm still, I'm still, to this day, I still don't care. Although, I like, as far as royals go, I like Prince Harry because he seems like he's a little outside the box and does what he wants. Which oh, like. he totally is. She was divorced. Yeah. She's from a mixed marriage. She's like... She's oh, mixed she, herself. Yeah, she's, she's right. American. He's totally outside the box. I love it. Yeah, yeah I like that. And uh, it's good that... Well, it's also they're showing a you know, sign of the times. You know, if this was uh, two hundred years ago, it wouldn't he would have been killed or something. You know, they would have yeah. been like, you, you're extradited. You're no longer royal. You're extradited to the basement. Yes, be, be yes. off with his head. But yes, you know what exactly. blew my mind? They are going to have children no older than seven years old in their wedding. Six bridesmaids and four page boys, and the youngest is two. Now, how? How? I, I can't figure this out. How are you going to control children younger than seven in such an enormous production? Um, there'll be adults there like whacking them with sticks behind their back. Oh, poking them as they go down the aisle? Yeah. 
Come on. All right, let's go. Oh, because you're talking about Princess Charlotte is two. I can't. All right. So my my granddaughter, Brittany, just turned three at two, sending her down the aisle in front of how many hundreds of people? Uh Uh-uh. Ain't happening. Yeah. Yeah, well, now I want to watch. See, you just sold me on it. I want to see yeah. like a train wreck. Thanks. Well, it's it's the truth of the matter is, you know, maybe they they are taught. I don't know. Do they raise them differently from birth on, and they are expected to know, or I don't know. You wouldn't understand, Karen. They're royalty. Oh, you're right. Thank you very yes. much. Yes, yes. Um, and that concludes our headlines and headaches for today. Lovely and mm. boop boop boop. Mails in. Okay, email number one, dear one tough mother. How do I go from living for four years in a house at college with four best friend sisters back to my parents' house with back to my parents' house with mom, dad, and two high school brothers? Now that I've graduated, I need a job and an apartment, but most of all money, because fitting in back here is going to be so hard. Help. Oh boy. How would you go first? That's yeah. a tough okay, all four of my kids out of college. Um my oldest son moved in with his girlfriend who's now his wife my young my second son came home and then went to the police academy um but he stayed here a while so he didn't have to pay well he was gone all week but so he didn't have to pay rent my third son um stayed here like a year until they got married i think a year later and then my daughter stayed here for like two years with her fiance till they got married it's tough. It is. I mean, it's tough for everybody all the way around because these, you know, you're out on your own. You, you know, you're doing whatever the hell you want. And then all of a sudden you move back into your parents' house. Now, I don't know, moving back in with two little brothers or kid brothers in high school, that might be tough. But you're going to have to compromise, dude, because you don't have money, you don't have a job, and you got school loans. So believe me, you're not in any predict. You're not in any situation that nobody else is coming out of a college right now. Everybody's not safe. One of the things you can do is, um, you know, you can get a job waiting tables or bartending, get a couple of roommates and get an apartment and kind of keep living that college life a little bit. You know, it's a little bit of a struggle, but if it's that, you know, if it's that important to you, you'll find a way to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Unless just sitting there applying for jobs on a computer with no experience, it's going to take time. And I think as an employer, as someone who's looked at resumes and everything, if I was hiring someone who was just out of school and I saw that they were actually working, doing something, I, I, that, that would be impressive to me to be, you know, it, it just paying bills and working and hustling, you know, that shows initiative. Yeah, so, I agree. And you know what? The fact that the best, yeah. go ahead, sir. Oh, go ahead, sir. I was gonna say, just make the best of your situation. And if it's something you really want, you'll have to work harder for it. That's all. I agree. And you know what? You can't just sit there and wait for somebody to ring your doorbell and say, okay, so you have a degree in this, you're here, you know, let's go. No, you have to, you, you've got to do something until that time. So you, that was a great, great advice because I bartended, you bartended, I waitressed, you waitressed. Or no, you didn't waitress. I waitered. Waitered. And yes. uh, you do what you have to do, right? Right. I tell you, it's, um, it's good money. It's cash. It'll help you pay bills. You know, you get an apartment, share an apartment with a couple of people. And, you know, at least you'll have that. You'll be struggling, but you'll, you'll be taking care of yourself. You'll be an adult. Right. I agree. Yeah. So that's so, our, that's our advice to you. And on the flip side, there's nothing wrong. If people want to, you know, I have a niece that moved back in. If, if you're comfortable with your parents and your family and, and you want to save money and, and, you know, do it that way too, there's nothing wrong with that either. Right. 
just work a lot, <laughs> you know, like exactly. work, you know, work when they're work a lot and then just work towards something. I mean, I think initially everybody kind of has to step in back into their pants house for a little bit, just, you know, work and be, be considerate. It's not a frat house anymore. It's not a paternity or a fraternity house. You have to be considerate of their rules and what's happening. True. All right. Let's go to email number two. Dear one tough mother, my 12 year old daughter is a recluse. She spends so much time, too much time alone. She's always um, in her bedroom reading, watching TV around the computer. She acts like I'm leading her to the guillotine if I set up a play date with my girlfriend's 11-year-old daughter. I don't leave her at their house. I stay and visit with my girlfriend, but Bess constantly hovers around us and barely interacts with my friend's daughter, Sammy. I've spent endless hours worrying and asking Bess how she feels or if something's wrong. All she says is she doesn't have anything in common with Sammy, and I'm forcing her to be her friend so I can visit with her mother. Here's a bit of our history. Bess is my only child. Bess's dad and I divorced when she was six, and he hasn't been a very big part of her life. Shortly after our divorce, he married his mistress, and a few years later had twin girls who are now nine and recently a baby boy. Seeing or spending time with Bess is difficult, as he puts it. She won't interact with his wife or the twins and constantly asks to be taken home. On the positive side, I have a wonderful job that allows me to work from home two days a week with excellent benefits. We live in a nice condo in a very nice area of the city. Bess goes to a top-rated private school and gets great grades, so at least that part of Bess's life appears stable. In the middle of this school year, I spoke to Bess's teacher, her school counselor, and her pediatrician about increasing her antisocial behavior. About her increasing antisocial behavior, sorry, not increasing it. That would be uh, not good. The teacher pointed out that Bess has always been a bit of a loner, which is true and hasn't noticed much of a change. I recently met with a wonderful therapist recommended by Bess's pediatrician, and I asked Bess to speak to her. Well, Bess freaked out. She absolutely refuses to go and says she will not talk to that shrink. Just leave me alone. She screams. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm at my wit's end. I don't know. I don't want to keep upsetting Bess because I am terrified of what she might do. You hear such scary things that kids do now. I refuse to push her. Do you have any suggestions on how to move forward and get Bess help? I feel lost. Oh, wow. Go on this one because you were just talking about how well-rounded your son is. Give some suggestions. <laughs> um uh, you know, coming from divorced family, uh, I think that she feels like she's been rejected and replaced. And, uh, I think that's where a lot of her pain comes from. Not that I'm not a therapist. I'm a don't, I don't want to get any like hate mail or anything. I'm just, this is just my opinion. Um, and it's tough. I think you have to, uh, I think mom just has to keep being supportive of her and, and let her be her socialness, you know, be, you know, take her to movies or, you know, spend time with her and, and do and try to do things socially with your daughter, you know, and show her as much love and compassion as you can, because I think she's really missing out on that. And uh, can you imagine that your, your father left? And, had, and I, I went through this to not, maybe not to this extent, but you know, my dad got remarried, had another child. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize as much then because it was just life as I do now. Cause she was six. I was just a little, I was like two when my parents got divorced. So, just seemed like normalcy to me, but she knows she remembers, you know, and she was rejected and her dad has other kids that he loves and, and spends time with. And, you know, that, I think that's where a lot of the, a lot of it comes from. I agree. Um, but she's doing well in school. Um, and, you know, I, I would say just, you know, I, I would keep trying to get her to go to, to um, just talk to therapists, but you gotta like really ease into that. And, um, 
you know, and just be spend as much time with your lover as much as you can to try to make up for that. Uh, you know, uh, and I wonder if there's any grandparents or, or any other family members that that can actually help and be supportive and, and spend time with her as well. If she has any cousins or anything like that. I agree. And and I'm going to go on, on the other end a little bit with, um, OK, you're her mother and um, she's 12. So she's probably starting puberty and is saying that she freaks out and she's not going to go and you're not going to push her. You're her mother. You need to say, hey, I'm going to go with you. Um, we're going to go together. But I think she needs another outlet to someone else to speak to. And some kids are just loners. I mean, realistically, some kids just are loners. I agree with everything Seth says. She probably feels like she's been replaced in her father's life. Um, she keeps asking to come home. She doesn't She doesn't want to uh, be there or whatever the case is or interact with the other family. You are her, her rock. You are her stability. You are the person that's there, obviously, 24-7, 365. So she feels comfortable with that. But um, I can understand that she wants to come home. But I think before she gets into full-blown puberty, before she becomes a teen, before she gets involved in, in, in the Internet doing other things, if she does do that, you need to, to have her speak to a therapist. And I think you have to be her mom and say, you know, Bess, I know this isn't what you want to do, but I'm going to go with you and I'm going to support you. I'll sit there with you. And you've got great benefits. And for however long it takes, just keep going with her eventually she's going to probably break down and talk. That's my thought on it. And I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. I just know that that's what my course of action would be with one of my kids. If, if I had that happen, I would say, well, like I'm your mom, you're 12. You don't get to make this decision. I feel that I need to help you through this. And I think this is the best decision for us together. And we're going to go. I agree with what you said. Yeah. It's, it has to, yeah, she has to get her there for sure. Yeah, because it's, you know, and again, there are kids that are, are just more more of a recluse. They're more of loners. They like to be alone. They like to read. I Someone in my family, not my one of my kids, but in my a family, has a child that, that loves to read, loves to spend a lot of time alone, and, and, and really absorbs books and gets into books and just and she's a wonderful wonderful child and she and she's as smart as a whip and um, she's a beautiful kid and she's she's great socially as well. But um, I think if she's missing that social aspect at 12 and she doesn't have a social part of her life, she needs to learn that. And that's that needs to be a learned behavior. So she needs to see someone who help her with it. I agree. OK, so that's our suggestion. We hope that it works out. And again, we're, you know, we're not professionals, but we give you the best advice that we would we give you advice we would take for our families. Like these are the things that I would think if Seth called me and said this about him, one of his kids, or I told him about one of my, these are the things that we really try to, these are just good old fashioned motherly advice. That's how we look at it. So that's that for today. And you want to hear mother says, I'm waiting. Okay. Mother says today is don't burn your opportunities for temporary comfort. How weird is that? We're talking about the woman that's kind of getting out of college. Don't burn your opportunities for temporary comfort. Get out. Do something. Keep living. Keep moving. Don't stop just because you're comfortable. Live outside the box. That's where growth is. And with that, we say, rain, rain, go away. Please, please. And we'll talk to you next week, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Have a good one, everybody. Thanks.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.